name is Peter Knight and I want to thank you for listening to this podcast. My guest today is Australian tennis coaching legend Ray Ruffles. He is best known as a coach of Wimbledon doubles champions Todd Woodbridge and Mark Woodford who had an incredible six wins and a runner-up in an eight-year stretch. But Ray was also an excellent player himself. His work ethic as a player carried forward into his coaching and you'll find out how he went about making himself the best possible coach he could be for his players. I also asked him later about the traits he thinks are necessary for Australia to again rise in the tennis world. There are lessons for anyone in a coaching or leadership role in this podcast. If you enjoy the chat with Ray, then go to iTunes and look up Iron Golf Mind. Subscribe to the podcast series, that way you won't miss any. You can also download and catch up on past interviews. And if you find you're getting some great information, then please tell your friends. Enjoy my chat with Ray. So Ray, thanks for your time in having a chat. And I'm really interested, you've had a quite a, a great career both in playing in the early days and then coaching. What I'd love to do is just talk a little bit about you're playing, and then how you transition from playing into coaching? You know, I had a fairly long career, about 15 years on the circuit playing. I was a, quite a good player without being great. I made the semis of Australia three times, the quarterfinals of Wimbledon, and the Australian Open doubles and other things, of course. But, you know, I wasn't one of the greats of the game. It came uh, time for me to stop due to an el- elbow injury. I was immediately... Almost immediately, I uh, got the job as Australia's national coach and um, began on my birthday in 1980. Straight away, almost from the circuit, uh, I began coaching and uh, I went away for four and a half months overseas with a team of three boys and uh, six boys and three girls. It's interesting. We'll just back up a little bit because you, you finished playing and then went straight into coaching. Now, coaches aren't appointed on a whim, so there must have been something that you were uh, showing was an interest or doing something that would actually put you in a position to be able to be chosen as a coach. Uh, yeah, I guess so. Uh, I wasn't favoured at the time, but I, I did all my homework and uh, and uh, and asked to be included in a a camp that Neil Fraser was doing with young players like Pat Cash and Wally Masur and John Fitzgerald and others. And um, I think I was always a pretty hard worker uh, on the circuit. I think I'd been around for such a long while that I had a big and quite a good knowledge of how to play the game of tournament tennis and how to uh, handle the rigours of, of the circuit, tennis circuit. So... I think I was recognised as a pretty reasonable team person, so uh, that's uh, gave, I was, I'm impressed at that camp and, and got the job. Excellent. Um, so you, you talked about doing ha- homework leading into it. So what were the types of things that you looked at as a you know a, a developing coach? When I began coaching, Wally would have been about 16, I think it was, and I travelled with him for three years or so. What they were after with me was not so much a development coach because these guys had all had coaches for quite considerable times by the time they're 16, 17, 18, 19. Big Fitzy was about 19 at the time. Was somebody to show them the ropes and to guide them on the transition from 
being good juniors to good tournament players. I'm yeah. really inter- I'm really interested in that because unlike golf and most other sports, you know, tennis coaches travel and, and stay with the players a lot and particularly showing them the ropes. So what is it about tennis coaches and the role of coach that's different to, say, a, someone who just sees a coach occasionally? I find it, you know, it's so important in tennis to be watching on, watching what goes on in a tennis match, seeing what points they're playing at big times, uh, seeing what's breaking down under pressure. It's no good just watching people hit balls in, in uh, practice. What needs to be improved is the, the way they're playing their points in the match and what's breaking, what's costing them when it really gets tight. And that's what you have to go out and, and work on. And, uh, you know, the success of that takes a long while too. So a lot of those points that, or where they break down under pressure, um, that's not necessarily strategic errors, or, or if they're strategic errors, they're brought on by the pressure. So how do you teach a player to start to be comfortable in those pressure-filled situations? Well, you've got to try and analyse each player and and see, uh, you know, what they're comfortable with, how, how how they should be thinking about 30, 40, and 4, 5. Some some players like to like to play a tough point. Uh, some people like to see a spot and go for it. I think that you better try and get as many much of the percentage on your side as you can, and you've got to try and match up with what they do with their personalities to some degree. When I travel so much with with the players, you talk about tennis so much over breakfast, lunch and dinner, working out how they analyse their opponent's mentality and just how they're approaching their tennis. You've got a big influence on them when you're uh, with them so much. Yes, and I imagine that the conversations can't be limited just to tennis, especially with younger players too. Oh yeah, no. <laughs> when you like, I, I was with Todd from fourteen till he was twenty-eight. Uh, Mark for about eight or nine years. So um, the two players you're talking about, Todd Woodbridge and Mark Woodford, mm-hmm. were sort of better known as the as the Woodies winning multiple Wimbledon titles and everything like that. And it's interesting that you, you've just said that you t- coached uh, Todd from the time he was 14, which was well before the the Wimbledon winning days. So what was that progression like as a, as a, being in a co- as a coach working through those years with him? Well, it certainly went from me telling him everything to do to and then beginning to travel on the circuit, you know, setting up good routines. I'm a big believer on getting back on the court uh, straight after matches to work on some little thing for the next day. Just our general day-to-day, you know, what we would do in a day to, uh, you know, through romances and broken romances and making money and getting publicity and how to handle it and to in the end where then it went from Tennis Australia paying me to try and get these players to play good tennis to them actually employing me and that brings about a big change and it's where they start to actually call a few of the tunes anyway and 
and so we progressed from there. And I suppose after about 14, 15 years, I guess we've just about said everything we can. But <laughs> but uh, we had a, a, a great relationship, still do, and I think it was based on, you know, love of the game of tennis and, and working hard and enjoying the hard work. I mean, I mean, in order to do well at sport, you have to really enjoy working hard. And a lot of the fun uh, comes out of working hard. Exactly. I mean, also, with, with with those, most of the guys I, I coached, I always tried to get them interests outside of uh, tennis, mm-hmm. uh, so that we weren't like everybody else on the circuit, locker room, practice court, locker room, match court, match court home, eat in the same room with everybody. Uh, we always took jackets and ties, and at least once a week. We went to a very nice restaurant or a theatre or somewhere. Oh, excellent. To, uh, to, to be, be somewhat different. Yeah, and from what you're saying, it sounds like the relationship change is um, similar to what it is in golf. You know, it starts off, say, with a junior player where the coaching role is very much directive and then over time it, it becomes more of a, a collaborative relationship and then as the player gets to higher and higher levels, it's the player then saying, this is what I feel I need to do. Yeah, I think that's, uh, yeah, I think that's very, yeah, I think that's the way it is. I mean, um, and that's the way <laughs> who's paying the money it changes. So, <laughs> yes, very, very similar. It does. When So we've mentioned a couple of times about the idea of, you know, having to love hard work, which is the same for anybody who's mm-hmm. aspiring to do anything at a world-class level. How else did you train them? If you're with a player or players for a long and extended period of time, what sorts of things did you do to, to stay fresh? We, we, came, we came at the very, at the very start of the uh, big junior development push in Australia in 1980, um, and the Australian Institute of Sport was just becoming in and so for quite some time, we just played and trained like Harry Hopman and what I was shown. And I tried to introduce them having, you know, three or four weeks a week off. And, uh, but always it's difficult on the circuit, particularly when you're away four and a half months and you've got, you're looking after nine, nine kids and yourself. So from the start, we trained very hard doing, doing sprints and, and, Lots of lots of running and just like I was brought up on. Uh, gradually, that evolved with more information from the AIS, and it wasn't easy in the initial stages to get permission from Tennis Australia to to have a trainer. But by the time I'd gone out and Todd and Mark and Jason Solberg were employing me, we sort of broke new ground in the fact that they also hired Mark Waters and a uh, very well-known trainer in Australia. So uh, we actually broke new ground there with uh, there were three players and um, a coach and a trainer. And so to limit travel time, sometimes they'd go away with just Mark Waters. And sometimes with me for the majors, we'd all come together. It's uh, interesting how over time the trainers have started to be used and they're probably only over the last five years or so that started to happen a little bit more with golf. So, But it's definitely been happening with tennis a lot more now. 
Yeah, yeah, um, it's very necessary. Uh, in a lot of ways, um, we helped change the, the face of tennis uh, quite a bit. Um, we had a great reputation for being professional and working hard and being prepared. I used to take copious notes about opponents and uh, and the games and um, uh, I used to chart the matches and I always had very, very full days. My my original idea, which is still is pretty good, is that I was going to get to the courts with these kids and I was going to work harder than any other coach at the courts and I think I managed that and I think we had a good reputation in those days with the Australians that we were fierce workers and, and certainly aiming to be very good. It's interesting the effect that that can have. If, uh, if an opponent feels like someone has either an innovative edge, which clearly you created, or an edge because of hard work, then that's got to be worth a few points or a few games in a match. I think it's absolutely huge. I mean, I think it's unbelievably huge. I mean, I believe in Australian tennis until until everybody around the courts looks back and sees the Australians coming into the court and, you know, Jesus, this mismob's pretty tough and they're going to work their butt off and these guys come to play. That's what we're starting to do with, with other countries. You've been for a long while now, Ukraine and um, China and everybody sits up and takes notice when they walk through the gate until we get back to that and we did have it once we were the uh, australia was the hardest toughest working tennis nation in the world until we get back to that no matter what happens whatever i don't think we're going to to go ahead and gain our former ground until we set that up i remember speaking with neil craig and he was talking about the time that he was working with charlie walsh with Mm -hmm. the australian cycling and when they, when he first started working with them, they'd go to major championships and the, the Australian players were all friendly and the other teams would say, oh, here the Aussies, they love a good time and yeah, mm. but they're, they're easy beats. And then within two or three years, they'd say, oh God, here come the Aussies. I guess they're going to win all the golds again. And so there was a fear that was established because mm. of what they did and how they went about it. Oh, that's a huge, I, I think it's absolutely huge. I mean, you know, and, and, and in a lot of ways in tennis these days, we've got that reputation. You know, they're nice, they've got nice games, they're well coached. They're, 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 <laughs> but, um, <clears throat> uh, you know, when it, when it gets down to it, they'll lose, you know. And um, I think with any sport, that sort of aura around a player either, as you say, some innovative advantage or some advantage, hard, hard work is certainly one that you can, you can put on the table yourself. You know. So a 17-year-old player comes along to you now. They've been doing well at junior level, and they say, Ray, I love what you talk about players and opponents fearing. That's what I want. I want the players to see me walking on the court and have that fear. What do I have to do? And what's your response? How do you how do you work with that player? Uh, well, I'm retired now, and I <laughs> and I don't have the energy I once did. But you have to make it visible around the court that you're doing more and you're doing it better than than the other players. That's just off the court, and then on the court it eventually will be backed up by results. 
every time a new young player comes on the court, they're not handed a rite of passage. They've they've got to earn it. Yes. And 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 visible hard work. We used to play a, a, a game when it was with Todd and Mark and Stoltz and Frommy that if we look back as if we're leaving the courts and we never we always left the courts pretty late, if there was still somebody out there, we'd look up their results to see how they did. Invariably, the best results in the weeks around that of go for the people that are out there out there longest. And invariably, even with the guys that I was with, it was a weird thing, but the harder I worked, the better their results were. <laughs> so the fitter, fitter I got, the longer time I spent on court, uh, invariably their results were were best. You know. Yeah, so, so your bank of, of knowledge of strategy and how it applies to you know individual opponents and watching them that I mean that must have been invaluable to the players you led so no wonder those results came from your hard work yeah I mean when I was younger and I could still play on the court and chase balls and I, I you know like always really liked hard work and a lot of fun practicing chasing balls and trying to get them back into tough positions and <laughs> and so with me still being young enough and, and being able to hit the ball well enough and, and fast enough to play with them, I was able to really try and show them where they should hit the ball from there and if they did get it there, where they, the next ball was going to come from the opponent. So we practiced like that all the time on, on the way to play tournament tennis. Did you do anything like having one of the players take on the game pattern of, a, of an opponent who was coming up? So, so one of the players is, could pretend to be someone else and play their game style to teach the other player at the other end of the court how to play that game? I can't. No, I can't really remember that. Uh, re- remember doing that. Um, <clears throat> you know, we certainly have people playing a game style they didn't like to try and get some expertise in that or we we had baseline drills where we weren't allowed to come to the net or consistency drills where uh, you know basically we were trying to play all round attacking game but we would we wouldn't specifically say specifically say like you're going to play like uh, oh, I don't know if it, a ground stroke you know um, yeah yeah we yeah, we, we, we did all those things, you know, I mean, we, we spent a lot of time on the court, so, um, in order to understand tennis from a lot of different angles, that we didn't actually put a name on it, you know. Sure. In tennis, like in golf, there are going to be so many players that come through that have tremendous talent, but they, they fall over before they, before they actually do anything. And I'm sure you've seen a lot of those in tennis over your years as well. What are the things that you've found that seem to separate out the very good tennis players from the very best? Character is a, is a big uh, is a big thing, you know. I mean, and being able to to accept praise and um, and everything, but you know, realise it's not. You can just use it to help yourself, or you can use it to destroy yourself. And overly believe what you read in newspapers, and you know once you become a good junior world, you're on the first run. You've got to do the same thing all over again that you've 
you've done to, to get to, to that stage. And it's just a, it's just a start. So you have to be a, a student of the game of tennis for your, for your life, really. And many people in this day and age, you know, they start getting money early and they start getting articles here and articles there. They start to feel that they're, they got a handle on this, you know. So, and, and that's a sure, uh, recipe for, for not improving. It's interesting that a lot of players from a lot of the European Eastern Bloc countries, the ones that have had poor upbringings, and I'm thinking also in boxing of, you know, a lot of the, the ghetto dwellers when they were juniors, they've had to fight and they just, they keep going. You know, it doesn't matter whether it's tennis or boxing or whatever it is, but once they become good, they keep that fighting spirit, most of them. Yes, well, it's a, a, it's a way of life for them, but B, you know, so many, it's very apparent in tennis that many of tennis champions have come from uh, places where tennis gives these players a means to escape a two-bedroom apartment in Moscow for the rest of their life or wherever, and uh, and it gives them a chance to to see the world. And, you know, back in the 50s and 60s, and even to when talking to Ivan Lendl, you know, one of the initial things apart from loving the game is to get outside the country to have a look at what else there was in the world. So this is a, all of these, just this motivation that this is a means to, to, to change your life to, if you can be successful at it, uh, for you to, to live a far greater existence than your parents. It's a huge motivation. Yeah, absolutely. What are the, some of the traits that you're looking for in young players? I, I firmly believe that you've got to have a huge serving of talent. Obviously, people have got different amounts of talent, but as Fred Stolle once said to me, he said, if everybody could do everything, there'd be a lot of people at number one. But everybody can't do everything. So you've got to have a reasonable confidence in their ability to get to a, sta- to a certain stage. Then they, they've, got to have, they've got to have a presence and a, and a love of the, of the big moment, and they've certainly got to be uh, hard, hard working, you know, with, the, with a solid head on their shoulders. I don't think they have to be perfectly behaved. I've met a lot of champions in my time, and they're very... A uh, wide range of characters in those. You know, I think that they do have to have their feet on the ground, great helping of talent, and wanting to work very hard to take advantage of that. Yeah, and I think you talked about being perfectly behaved. A lot of these players are sort of late teens, early 20s, and most people in their late teens and early 20s make mistakes, but um, they just, they're not. Their mistakes aren't written about in newspapers or talked about in radio and shown mm-hmm. on television. So, yeah. in the end run, you're trying to get good tennis players or something, uh, and not you know, not perfect people. Your um, son Ryan is—he's uh, already represented Australia in golf, and so you've got the, your experiences as a tennis player and coach at the highest level. And now he's moving forward at a, a very rapid rate as far as golf development goes. How do you combine the role of father and mentor to help him on his journey? It's pretty easy. <laughs> I'm just 
to stay out of the way unless he, um, <laughs> he really... I think one of the things is that you've got to give the, the, the people who are coaching people confidence, not just trying to pick holes in them. Mm-hmm. Uh, trust that they're doing a sincere job, um, which they are. The people at Ryan and my daughter's age don't uh, take notice of their parents readily or on the surface they don't take notice. I emphasise the things that we've been talking about. You know, things seem to be going going well. I, I, I hope they are, and um, I've got respect for uh, a lot of the ways Ryan thinks and carries on, so I stay out of the way uh, quite a lot. It's interesting, Ray, the, the things that you've been talking about, the, the things that you promoted for players to become good, you know, 30 years ago or, or you know, even 40 years ago, they really haven't changed. Not a lot. <laughs> no, I don't think that'll ever change, really. You know, and, and when we're working away at anything in Australia, we've got to be concentrating on what the international standard is, not what the standard in Australia is. And then trying to better it. Yeah, and trying to better it, yeah. So um, that's the way it is. We've got to be uh, prepared to pay a high price for a high reward. Exactly. Ray, thanks for your time. I've enjoyed the chat and the messages about, you know, working hard, but not just the athlete working hard, but the coach to work hard, then pass on whatever they, you know, they're learning to the athlete for a, uh, a mutual, a team benefit. It's been fantastic. I must say, just to finish, is that I, I really believe in every sport that a coach must watch and, and see what happens to the player under pressure and under the gun. From, from there you start working. Uh, not really just from a, an idealistic book of how it would, everything would like to be. Everybody hits tennis many, many shots all differently. In order to take the player along, you've got to isolate what you need to work on. That is such good advice for any sport. Ray, thanks for your time. Okay, good to you, Peter.